0: Log Talk
1: Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me.
2: also known as the Bible, and that is their song that they sing about that and the answers to life's most important questions in there in the Bible. And what I'm gonna do now is they to do this called Bible questions and answers part forty three and feature John MacArthur here on Trippy
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author and bible teacher with Grace to you. If you've never contacted Grace to you, we want to send you a free booklet by John called God's Sufficient Word. It will help you see that for every concern you have, every decision, every struggle, every sorrow you face, the Bible has the wisdom you need. Request your free booklet by writing to word at gty.org. That's word at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
4: All right, tonight we're going to have a little time of uh, question, and I hope answer. question I'm sure about, answer may not come as easily, but uh, we want you to feel free to uh, ask what might be on your heart tonight. Uh, As I said, the idea is to try to clarify things or help you with things in terms of understanding Scripture or... Uh, your own spiritual life, and uh, there are three microphones, one in the middle and one on each side, and uh, just kind of line up, and we'll, we'll do as much as we can. We, we may not, maybe you better not let them get any more than five deep, guys, because we may not be able to cover all of it. So if you see five people in the line, stay in your seat until uh, the lines drop down a little bit so you don't have to stand there for a long time and uh, kind of block the vision of the folks that are, uh, that are around you. And uh, let's see, uh, Jerry Rag is over here, and uh, Lance Quinn is in the middle, and Dick Mayhew over on that side, just trying to help these folks uh, formulate their questions. So, uh, we will start uh, in the center. How about that? Just give me your name first, and then ask the question.
5: Okay, my name is Pete Bowden.
4: Can I get a, a mic on, or a, a speaker on up here? Okay.
5: And my question is concerning the uh, death of Christ and i know that the uh, word faith people have uh, are teaching a very uh, uh, erroneous uh, teaching on the death of christ and going to hell and being born again and so forth but it seems like uh, some sound teachers are denying the spiritual death of christ along you know to kind of uh, dispute what the word faith people are saying and i'd like you if you would to uh, Uh, answer the question did Christ die spiritually on the cross and what are some of the uh, scriptural texts in regard to that well
4: spiritual death is usually defined as separation from God and in that sense I would say yes Christ did die spiritually we know he died physically I mean that's obvious because they crucified him and he yielded up his spirit Right, And they ran a spear into his side, and out came uh, the pericardial fluid mixed with blood, which indicated probably that his heart had burst, and so we know he died physically. What beyond that he experienced was a separation from God. And I believe in that sense there was a spiritual alienation. There was a spiritual death. Spiritual death is alienation from God. And Jesus articulated that when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think in, in the experience of bearing sin in his own body, literally, Paul says, being made sin for us, the separation occurred. And so I think there was a spiritual element to his death. Now, obviously, his nature was not defiled. Okay, and that's, that's, the, that's the caveat that you have to place there. While he bore the sins of many, he himself never became a sinner. That's the mystery of it. He was made sin in the sense that all our sin was placed upon him But he himself was not culpable so that his death was a voluntary substitutionary death and not one for his own iniquity. And that's where the word faith people just completely uh, misrepresent the death of Christ. They have Christ dying on the cross as a sinner, then going to hell. This is what Kenneth Copeland, for example, teaches. Going to hell and there suffering punishment for his sins and then being born again and coming back to the world uh, on his resurrection morning. Um, But you're right, in disputing that, we cannot dispute the reality that Christ was made sin, and in being completely covered with sin, He was alienated from God, which is the essence of what spiritual death is. Uh,
5: Besides the reference in Matthew, uh, do you have any other Scripture that would talk about that separation? I know in Psalm 22... Well, yeah, that's because that's
4: where he drew that from, from Psalm 22. Um, And just off the top of my head, I'm trying to uh, remember if there's any specific one. Uh, My mind is drawn to Colossians chapter 2, where it says that the certificate of debt, verse 14 consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, which was the accumulated sin, the debt that we had accrued against God. Um, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And I think, again, what this is saying is that the whole body of sin was placed upon Christ and nailed with Him there. And I think it's, it's just inherent in that that there will be an alienation from God as He bears this sin. Um, another text that comes to mind is um, in Hebrews where we see um, Christ depicted as the scapegoat, um, as the one who has to suffer. You remember, outside the camp. You remember the scapegoat? The high priest would put his sins on the scapegoat, and then he would be taken outside the camp, indicating that sin was taken away. Christ is the scapegoat. He suffers without the camp. And there again, you have the same concept of alienation, where he is sent out into the wilderness bearing sin. But I, I can't just off the top of my head think of any other specific statement with that regard. Do you have any in mind?
5: Well, the verse in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18 uh, for Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. And then it says, "Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit." And I'm wondering, that quickened by the Spirit is that what is what is that? No, meaning? no. What I
4: what I think that means, and I, and what I I think you have to have to hold there, and it's why I wouldn't refer this verse particularly to this issue. I, I think it simply means He was He was dead physically, but He was alive. In, his spirit. in other words, that would be true of, of anybody who dies, right? I mean, you can kill the body, but you can't kill the soul. And I think that's what it means, that his body was killed, but his soul did not go out of existence. So when we talk about spiritual death, we're not talking about someone's soul going out of existence. And it tells us there that being alive in the spirit, he then went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. It is true that he did go to the abode of demons, but he didn't go there to suffer. He went there to preach. Right. Okay. So all that's saying is that while his body was dead, the real Christ was still alive. Still alive. Okay. That doesn't speak of the alienation that he experienced on the cross in bearing sin. Okay. Okay? Thank you. Good question. Thank you.
6: Uh, there are some movements. My name is Stuart Naranjo there's some movements in the body of christ to unite the body of christ i'm not just talking about channel 40 or ktbn but i'm thinking of wycliffe too where they have catholics and some charismatics in their organization do you think that there are any movements extant that are good or do you think that they all endanger sound doctrine
4: well thank you for the question um First of all, let's make one thing clear. The body of Christ is intact, um, spiritually. God knows those that are His, they are His flock, they are His body, and it's intact. Um, So, from the spiritual side, we are one. And therefore, it behooves us to pursue a temporal expression of that unity. So I I want to say at the very beginning that we must do everything we can to endeavor to to maintain the the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, right? Uh, We we want to do everything possible we can to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, It is, I believe, that unity that is uh, crucial to our testimony. Uh, Jesus said, uh, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you, because you have love one for another... Uh, as he told the disciples in John. So uh, let me say that no one is a greater advocate of the unity of the body of Christ, the expressed unity of the the body. The the body is one. We've all been baptized into one body, right? 1 Corinthians 12, we've all been made to drink of one spirit. So we are one in Christ. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Everybody who's joined to the Lord is one with the Lord, so everybody who's joined to the Lord is one with each other. That is the spiritual reality. And I believe, by the way, that in John 17, when Jesus prayed that they may be one, that prayer is answered. It is answered in the spiritual unity of the church. I don't think his prayer was for ecumenicity. I think his prayer was for the spiritual unity of the body of Christ, and I think and I know his prayer was answered. Now, to the issue at stake, the church has always struggled with unity. The Apostle Paul struggled with it, right? That's why he wrote about unity. And that's why he wrote Christians not to argue and quarrel and, uh, and uh, abuse each other, but to love one another and pursue unity on every front. But as you pointed out, unity is not true unity at the expense of theology, true doctrine. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, I don't see any great movement in the church today to bring together a visible unity around doctrine, around the truth. I see an awful lot of effort to try to bring together a unity that doesn't want to talk about the truth because the truth divides. And I think it's such a remote possibility because doctrine is such a remote issue. I mean, how are we ever going to get a real unity when we don't even want theology to be an issue? Not only can't we agree on doctrine, we can't even agree doctrine is important. So, um, now, on the other hand, I'm not sure that that you could ever create some kind of ecumenical unity in this temporal life. But I can certainly be one with a brother or a sister in the body of Christ who has a different view. I can express my love to them. Uh, I want to build on what we agree on. And if I have happen to be, say, with someone who's uh, convinced about the gifts of the Spirit differently than I am, I can choose not to make that an issue of fellowship or of love or of ministry. And I would definitely choose not to make that an issue However, if somebody is wrong about the gospel, I will make that an issue, or if they are wrong about the deity of Jesus Christ, I would make that an issue, or if they're wrong about um, issues of the atonement, such as we were just discussing, I would make that an issue. Um, but again, I- I've never felt compelled to create an organization to make this happen. Here we are a church like this. Now, uh, just out of curiosity, how many of you come, say, from a well, let's start with what might be the largest group of Baptist background. Put your hand up. Okay, put them down. How many of you come from a Presbyterian background? Okay, a few noble souls. Uh, <laughs> how many of you come from a Methodist background? How many of you come from a Lutheran background? Probably more. Yeah. How many of you come from uh, some kind of independent background that only you could define? <laughs> okay. <laughs> how m- how many of you would come from a Roman Catholic background? Put your hands up. Uh, how many of you would come from a Jehovah's Witnesses background? Anybody? Yes. How, how many from a Mormon background? Uh, you want to see unity in the body? There it is. There it is. Only it's, it's around the truth. Now, I, to be honest, I can't orchestrate that where I have no influence. I can't orchestrate that where where there's no agreement on truth, but I'll tell you what, if uh, the Lord continues to bless our church and we keep sending out other men to minister and other men to teach and preach the Word of God, we are affecting uh, by the the lives that we train and send out, the men and women that we send out to serve and minister and be pastors and and leaders in churches and missions around the world, we can find that kind of unity. And it does exist. If I go to, in fact, uh, I have to go to Russia. I, I think I may have mentioned that to you last Sunday. Did I say that? Because, in a, or Ukraine rather, because they had a meeting and uh, Bob Provost called me and said, uh, of course, the Dukhanchenko died uh, two weeks ago and uh, they lost their leader. And so when Bob Provost went over there, they were all sitting at a table and they said to him, uh, we want John MacArthur to come. And he said, he's very busy. And they said, yes, but he loves us. And if he knows of our need, he'll come. There is a bond between us there's nothing to create, and the bond is built upon a common love for the truth, and it transcends this church, but there's a common love of doctrine and a common commitment to the Word of God that ties us with people beyond the people we have normal influence with. And I'm not really concerned with trying to orchestrate some other kind of unity than that which is organic unity built around the truth. And I don't really see that as, as uh, happening much in the current picture in the church because the church has downplayed the role of doctrine to such a degree that if you bring it up, you're considered to be a sort of anti-unity now, this week I, I got a, a request to go meet with some people that I wouldn't necessarily agree with doctrinally, but I, I know they love Christ, and so I want to go, and I want to celebrate with them the unity that we share around those things where we commonly believe, but I, I certainly don't want to create an artificial unity that wants to ignore doctrine. So, inevitably, when we meet, we'll rejoice in the common faith, and then we'll discuss the differences. <laughs> As, as gentlemen with, in love, but we, we always wind up discussing those things because that, that's the issue of interpreting Scripture. Good question. Thank you. I wish we could say there was a real coming together in the unity of the church, but I see the church getting fragmented. In fact, folks, I, I you know, it's funny. I, I write a book and I think, if, well, that's covered that issue. And Before that book gets out, I have to write another one on another issue that's fragmenting the church that just keeps breaking into so many pieces. All right, over here. Yes. Uh, could you please clarify
7: the extent of the atonement, limited versus unlimited?
4: Well, I don't know if I could clarify it, uh, but I can take a, a sort of stab at it. People always ask this question um, about the extent of the atonement, and, and what the question is is basically this. Did Jesus Christ die for the whole world, or did he just die for the elect? Now, we believe in election because the Bible says that The elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. Their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life at that time. And they were given to Christ as a love gift from the Father. And that's what election is. And we were predestined to to be adopted as children of God and all that. So we believe in election. The question then comes, did Christ die only for the elect or did he die for the whole world? And the debate circles around these thoughts. If Christ died for the whole world, then he died for people that he didn't save and didn't choose and therefore you have a wasted effort on his part. In other words, you have him, this is the philosophical approach to it, you have him dying for people who were never supposed to be saved anyway, so why would he bother to die for them? Now, in the first place, this is a whole lot of human reasoning. And that's what makes it so very difficult. Christ died. He died. God knew who His death would benefit. True? God not only knew who His death would benefit, He decided who His death would benefit. He decided who His death would benefit before He planned His death. Because He wouldn't have planned a death unless He had planned a redemption effected by that death. Is that okay in the ordus category, Ken? Okay? Theology professor. (laughs) I mean, you don't plan the means until you plan the end or the goal. So, from the very outset, God knew that the death of Jesus Christ would be applicable to to the elect. Beyond that, I cannot go. Except to say this, that there are some ways, and, and you can find certain verses that seem to apply the atonement to the elect only, to go beyond it in, in several ways, maybe two. One, first of all, there are some ways in which the death of Christ applies to the non-elect and the the unsaved, and that would be in what theologians through the years have called common grace. You familiar with that term? Term grace that is common to all. Um, f- for example, um, in Acts fourteen. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. He let them go their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's what we call common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Also, in 1 Timothy four, ten, it says, God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, what does common grace mean? One, there is the temporal aspect of it. It's really all temporal, but let's just divide it that way for a moment. There is the... Well, let's take the the first temporal aspect of it would be earthly blessing. Somehow, in the atonement of Christ, the wrath of God was mitigated so that He allows even the unregenerate to enjoy life. Okay? I mean, they can laugh and they can smile and they can enjoy the richness of life and creation and love and children and whatever. But secondly, common grace shows itself in a temporal way in that God doesn't kill people. In other words, the very fact that a sinner takes another breath is grace, is it not? Because he deserves to die. So somehow in the atonement, there is found even a common grace which can be bestowed upon an unregenerate. And that common grace... It will express itself in the blessings of human life and in human life itself. But then there's another component. This throws the mystery into the whole thing, and that is this. If a person goes to hell, they do not go to hell because Christ didn't die for them. They go to hell because they rejected His death. Is that not true? And that's what makes the whole thing incomprehensible to me. I was fine until I made that statement, (laughs) right? But that's honest. There is an element in this whole atoning work that makes men culpable of sin because they believe not on Christ. Jesus simply said, you will die in your sins because you believe not on me. And we are told to go into the whole world and preach the gospel to all the elect. Is that right? every creature. So, the atonement, certainly in the purposes and plan of God, in its efficacy, its effectiveness, was from the very beginning planned for and limited to the elect. And yet, there was something in it that satisfied the justice of God so that He could be gracious commonly to all sinners. And there is another component in the atonement that renders sinners guilty of rejecting it and thus, they're damned. Now, if you understand all those components and just leave them there, you're okay. And we have to let God resolve all of that in His own perfect wisdom. Okay? Good questions. I think we're back to the middle.
5: Yes, uh, my name is Damien, by the way. Um, in James 5:14, it says, "Is any anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him." Now, if that's a promise to the church, then um, should we not be doing that? Or,
3: I guess my question is, is it a promise? Can we claim that as a church? Um,
4: I don't know why not. It's right here in the New Testament. Um, let, me, let me just tell you, there are two prevailing views of this uh, on our church staff.
8: <laughs> right, Dick? And uh, <laughs> so, uh,
4: I- I'll give you both views. There, there is the first view, which is uh, very viable, that this kind of sickness being addressed here is associated with sin, so that it is a sickness that is chastening. Not all sickness is chastening, right? Remember the man born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? And the answer was none of them. This is not anything to do with sin. Not all sickness is punishment for sin but some is. And the context here, calling for the elders of the church and letting them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. In other words, there would be the viewpoint that this is all tied in with confession of sins. If the Lord has put His hand on you in sickness as a chastening for sin... And you confess and repent and turn from the sin, then the reason for the chastening has ended, right? So that God can remove his hand. So confess your sin. Verse 16. If you'll deal with the sin in your life, the sickness that comes as a result of the sin will be dealt. Oil, some people associate with sim- symbolism of the Holy Spirit. Some people associate with uh, some medicinal. Um, I'm not sure. What, what normally does that view hold to the medicinal aspect, Dick?
3: They give me the. Yeah, they've got the mic here. Uh, that view could uh, could hold three different views. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not. Give them to me quick. Uh, w- one would be the medicinal view right. directly or the medicinal view by application, that it's medicine and pharmaceutics today. Some would talk about the uh, rejuvenating work of the Holy Spirit. And a third view, and and maybe the more general view, would be that it's the oil of well-being. It symbolizes what it is that God promised would deliver the the kind of anointing that we talk about in Psalm 23. Okay, good. So
4: that view would be that it's associated with sin. Now, um, I have chosen to approach it differently. And uh, if you want a more detailed view, uh, you can uh, get the tape on that. Tell them to uh, give it to you and put it on my account, okay, so you don't have to tape. Or Lance's account, even better. Uh, now, let's approach it another way, and I don't want to get into too much detail, but it also can be interpreted that the word sick there doesn't mean, doesn't mean illness or disease in a classic definition, but weakness. The term is often translated weak. And this would be a weakness that has come about as a result of serious persecution. What you have here in the context is persecution. Go back to verse 6. He is indicting the rich who have been attacking believers, condemning them and putting them to death. So these are Christians in a martyr situation. Some of them are being abused and beaten. And it even talks about how they've been defrauded of their proper wages and all of that. And then uh, in verse seven, he says, "So be patient, like a farmer." You be patient. Verse eight: Strengthen your hearts. Coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't complain. Uh, and then verse ten: As an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, and remember the endurance of Job and. And and remember, the Lord is full of compassion, is merciful. That whole context is about suffering and being patient and enduring like Job and like the prophets. And I think it's in that same flow that he comes down into verse 13 and says, Is anyone suffering? Pray. If you're not suffering, sing praises. And if the suffering has made you weak, and he's talking here, I think, about a spiritual weakness. You've just become weak under the onslaught of persecution and suffering. Go to the elders. Why would a weak person go to the elders? Because they're what? Strong. Let them pray over him. Literally, uh, rubbing him with oil. Um, what that means is encouraging, uh, giving him a sort of a spiritual massage in the name of the Lord. And their prayers of, of faith, offered in strength, will infuse strength into the one who is weak, and the Lord will lift him up, and if he's committed sins in his weakness, the Lord will forgive him. I like to see it that way. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to get into a, a debate with the other view. I think it's viable, but I, I, for my own sake, feel comfortable with this perspective, and that what he's dealing with here is those spiritual times of dryness and weakness. Now, I'll give you an illustration student came to me at the Master's College one day, and I've often said, if, "If my door is open and I'm there, you come in. And if you want to pray or talk about the, the Lord or the Word or whatever's on your heart, you come in. Um, I'm always available if the door is open, and it's usually open because I don't study there. And uh, one day, a young man came in and he, he said, "He said, uh, I need to share some things in my heart with you. And I said, uh, "Go right ahead. He said, "You know, I'm studying for the ministry. I, I love the school and God's at work in my life, but I have some some things that are going on in my life that are just crushing me and I feel spiritually weak and I keep falling to the same temptations and I can't seem to get victory over this and I'm in despair and I've lost my appetite for the Word and my prayers are just kind of empty and I, I just feel at a point of total weakness spiritually. And I want you to pray for me. And I really saw that as a spiritually weak person under whatever onslaught he was under coming to someone that he saw as spiritually strong and asking for me to hold him up. And I'll never forget it. I I knelt down in my chair. And as I knelt down in the chair, I said, kneel beside me. And he pushed the chairs together. And as I knelt down in the chair, he knelt down and put his arms and his head on my back. And it was such a graphic indication of what was in his heart. He was leaning on me physically because that's what he was doing in his spiritual heart as well. And so I prayed that God would give him strength, and and we prayed, and then he prayed, and I prayed again, and we prayed quite at length that the Lord would restore him, and that, that if he had committed sins in his time of weakness, the Lord would forgive him. And To me, that's the kind of thing that I sense here, not so much disease-related as the weakness that comes in the spiritual battle and the spiritual struggle. It could be illustrated, for example, by... Uh, Uh, the illustration of verses 17 and 18, which is not an illustration of healing, by the way, but an illustration of rain coming to a parched ground. And the spiritually weak person is in the dry place and desperately needs God to bring the rain that uh, brings strength. So that's that's kind of how I would handle that. All right?
6: All right, thanks. Thank you. Uh, Recently, a friend and I had some discussions concerning the uh, amount of information that is needed for salvation. My friend is a charismatic and uh, has that background. We were discussing the, uh, the heathen in Africa question. And uh, his point was that uh, a person could actually be saved without actually having the name of Jesus Christ mentioned or having the gospel, like the word of God, read to him or preached to him because God could actually speak to that person And they would uh, be saved much the same way as Abraham was saved in Romans chapter 4, where Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as uh, his righteousness. And I disagreed with him, and I said, I think, no, because God has given the word that that is what needs to be brought to them. And I brought to him Romans 10, that uh, a preacher needs to come. And so we come to you at at this point. I think
4: you're exactly right. In the first place, Abraham was was deemed to be saved because he believed the revealed word of God, not because of some private conversation. Any Old Testament saint could be said to be saved or in faith, believing God, when he believed all that God had revealed at that point. And it wasn't just all that God had revealed to him, but all that God had disclosed about himself. And there obviously is a saving amount of truth. Abraham could not have been saved simply if he'd have known God was a creator. He had to know God was a savior. He had to understand his sin, and it was abundantly clear, even in the the early chapters of Genesis, wasn't it, that God had a standard of righteousness and that God would judge one who violated that standard. We see that with Adam and Eve that God instituted symbols of the sacrifice of His Son early on in the proper offering that Abel brought. So all of that, and you can go back into the Old Testament and you can see many, many indications that there was a full knowledge that God was a God of righteousness and wrath and that men were sinners and that God had provided an atonement and that there was to be a provision for sin and if men would believe all that God had revealed about that up to a given time, that God would account that as faith and grant them salvation when you come to the new testament it is unequivocal in the new testament once the new testament has been revealed that the gospel must be understood and believed uh, nothing short of that um, verse 30 of, of uh, Acts act 17 therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance god is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. In other words, there was a time when God was patient and tolerant, but now He's commanding all men to repent, and the whole heart and soul of that repentance message is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, faith comes by hearing a speech about Christ. Um, this, this is not true uh there it is not possible to become a believer apart from understanding the gospel now whether you know the name Jesus or the name Christ or the name Lord Jesus Christ or part of that or none of that um, you certainly would have to understand that he was god in human flesh and was the perfect substitute for sin who paid the penalty for your sin and believe in his death and resurrection
5: okay uh my name's Craig and uh, this is a, going to be a hypothetical question, but it's uh, not silly. Does that mean like a hard one? <laughs> As long, you'll see. We'll just take the folks that are there.
4: I think we'll, if we hurry, we'll get them done in 15 minutes.
5: Okay, let's, let's say you had Church A, Church B, and Church C. Okay. And let's say you're Church C. Okay. Okay, and let's say Pastor the pastor of Church A falls uh, because he no longer, you know, if it's the elder qualifications, let's say it's immorality. Okay. And uh, let's say pa- that pastor goes over to Church B and they take him in and put him in a position of leadership, mm-hmm. a shepherd. Um, and let's say that you previously had a working relationship with Church B. Yes. Uh, that is to say you've engaged in, in mutual ministry. Um, could you, Church C, still maintain the same level of, of uh, a working relationship with Church B? No. No.
4: If I follow you, what you're saying is Church B has a, a man who committed uh, immorality in Church A. Could we maintain the same relationship? No.
9: With, with the new
5: church
4: that's right. taken him. mind? Yeah. No. Because it would, be, uh, it would be our conviction that he, ha- he shouldn't be in the ministry. And uh, while we might love the people and want to be a help and encouragement on a personal level uh, to be identified in any supportive role with that ministry... Uh, would be contrary to what we believe and what we believe the Word of God teaches. Okay?
9: Okay, thanks. That, was, that wasn't that was too difficult. Thank you. <laughs> uh, hi, Pastor. Hi. John, my name is Jim. Yes, I was reading your book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, and I just have just a couple paragraphs to read. It just talks about uh, spiritual warfare, who's after whom, okay, God's sovereign purpose, why things happen. And it says here, why why would God allow the devil, an already defeated enemy, to continue to trouble believers? Scripture does not attempt to answer that question. It only assures us that God's purpose, are always righteous, holy, good, and ultimately for our benefit. Okay? And it says here, uh, Paul wrote of the divine uh, purpose in the messenger of Satan that troubled him with the thorn to keep me from exalting myself. That's in Second Corinthians 12.7. And here in Job, uh, perhaps the earliest of all the books in the Bible, is a classic Old Testament study in how God uses Satan's uh, diabolical efforts to accomplish his own divine purposes. There was no one else like Job on earth. God himself testified to that. He was an blameless and upright man, fearing God and Turn away from evil, okay? And here, Job lost everything. His children were all killed. He suffered painful and humiliating. Are you Jesus. asking me if I agree with all this? No, no I'm almost finished. <laughs> okay, he struggled with doubt, depression, discouragement. And here, Peter, in the New Testament, also was personally attacked by Satan with God's permission. Right. Okay, my purpose is, as Christians today, do God allow these things to happen in our lives to strengthen our faith? Because Peter went through a certain uh, certain stances like that, sure. and God told him that you're going to go through it because you're going to strengthen the church. Does this still happen today? Do we do God allow Satan to buffet us for us to be stronger in the faith?
4: I think He does. I don't see any any reason to assume any difference. Uh, you you got you can go all the way back to probably the oldest book in the Bible, Job. Uh, which we could discuss about its authorship, but may have even been written before the Pentateuch. Um, You can go all the way to the time of the tribulation in the book of Revelation, and Satan is going to be heaping everything on believers then, right? Right. You can see it in the life of Paul. You can see it in the life of Peter. I don't see any reason since it's there at the very beginning and it's there at the very end in the redemptive plan of history why it shouldn't be running through the whole middle so i would assume that the that the answer is yes that the lord does turn satan loose on us uh, at his own purpose and discretion or turn demons loose on us for perfecting purposes to accomplish his own ends in our lives
9: yes okay thank you
4: there's nothing in the bible to convince us other than that Okay. okay thank you good good question
2: Hi, Dr. MacArthur. My name is Danielle C. and I'm visiting from Len Crowley's church in Detroit.
4: Well, send back our love when you go, will you? Okay. Um,
2: My question is, at what point does deception become sin? And, um, for example, Rahab was commended for her faith, but apparently she lied um, when she was hiding spies. Sure. And, um, more specifically, what would you do if you happen to be hiding Jews in your house, and um, <coughs> officials asked you if you were hiding Jews, what, how would you respond to that?
4: Well, in answer to that question, um, I would, uh, if asked directly, tell the truth, because I trust God. God does not need my deception to accomplish His purpose, okay? So I know people are going to say, whoa, 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 what about the Second World War? What about Cory Ten Boom? What about all that? I'm just saying, God does not need my deception to achieve His sovereign purposes. If He's going to save the Jews, He's proven capable of doing it without me saying, I think I can work this deal out by telling a few lies here and there. So first of all, my belief in the sovereignty of God puts me in a position where I would just tell the truth. Now... I wouldn't necessarily feel compelled to go down the street yelling it. But if asked, I would feel I would have to trust myself to God and speak the truth. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the story of David, you remember, when he was in the Philistine capital and he wanted to escape. And so he pretended like he was crazy and he drooled in his beard and he acted like he'd lost his mind. He scratched the walls and the gates. And the king says, look, we've got enough crazy people around here. Get this guy out of here. And they shipped him out, and he went off into a cave in the wilderness and and asked God to forgive him for his lack of trust, that he had to act a fool to orchestrate his own escape rather than waiting to see the hand of God. Now, in the case of Rahab, what you have to understand is God commended her faith, not her lie. There's nothing in the Scripture to indicate that He commended her lie, but He did commend her faith. And that's a good reminder that uh, believers do lie. I mean, there are times when the, the noblest of Christians may uh, commit the sin of lying, and God will not uh, damn us for the lie, but He will save us eternally for the faith. So what was distinctive about Ahab and her commendation was she was commended for faith, and if she had told the truth, who knows what wonderful thing God might have done to deliver Israel. Okay.
2: Hi, John. I'm Hi. Linda Young. Um, could you talk about children and communion, and should they wait till they're baptized to take communion?
4: That's a good question. Um, I, I think it's it's so hard to know uh, specifically in the life of a child when they reach the age when genuine salvation occurs. I mean, I watched my own four children growing up. Never did they rebel against Christ. At what point was their childlike faith saving faith? I don't know. But as soon as they wanted to participate, um, we were willing to let them. And I think they need to come to a a certain level. I remember the first time my father had a conversation with me about it. He's reminded me several times, and he said, we're going to the Lord's Supper tonight, and we want you to come, and it'll be your first time. And I said, well, I hope they don't have peas. (laughs) And... His, his basic response was, I think we'll wait a while.
8: <laughs>
4: so, well, what, what, what I'm trying to say is that there, there may be an appropriate time to start letting a child participate when they understand. I think it can be instructive. And um, I don't think that, uh, they, that you should become necessarily legalistic and say, you know, baptism is the entree into that. I think it can be instructive at a time when children understand its meaning and they believe in their hearts that they believe. I mean, it would be hard to say to a say a 7 or 8-year-old who says I love Jesus and I've asked him into my heart, well, I'm not sure this is really true, and we don't know whether we ought to let you do this. If it's their good intention to honor Christ and they understand that we're remembering His death and resurrection, then I think the intent of their heart is consistent with the intent of God in the service, that that's that's good instruction, and then they'll reach a point at some juncture um, when that saving faith is real and that service has its full meaning to them. Okay?
2: If Adam and Eve were the first two people?
4: Wait a minute, what was that again? If Adam and Eve were the first two people?
2: How did we get so many racials?
4: I mean, how do we get so many races? Oh, yeah. that's a good question.: This is a very complex question, but <laughs> let's go at it another way. The races that we experience today didn't really come from Adam and Eve. You know why? Because everybody on the face of the earth got drowned except for Noah and his three sons and their wives. So all the races came from Noah and Mrs. Noah and the three, <laughs> three little junior Noahs, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And uh, they were all, you remember, rescued in the flood and they came back and began to populate the earth they obviously through the years adapted themselves to their area they of course began to develop and all the races eventually came but uh, apart from what might be the scientific and historical explanation is the statement of acts seventeen where it says the god who made the world and all things in it since he is lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands neither is he served by human hands as though we have Need of anything. He made from one every nation. So that's the best answer. Acts 17 verse 26. God from Adam or from Noah and Mrs. Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth created the nations. Now one major component in that happened at the Tower of Babel, of course, where God scattered all the nations all over the face of the earth and changed their languages. So the best answer is right there in Acts 17, God did it. And God sort of tweaked their ears and tweaked their eyes and their nose and their color of their skin and all those genetic unique things in His creative power through the process of providential genetics to create all the different races.
7: Okay? Good. Good evening, Pastor. My name is Bernie. Bernie. I hope I have a hard question for you. Has to do i hope you don't answer me this question from the um sovereignty and the will of man view so with the conscience kind of what you've been teaching okay since christ purchased our liberty consistent in our freedom from the guilt of sin the condemnation of god the curse of the law and everything else that came with the saving work and since god alone is lord of the conscience do we in our trying to keep our conscience pure in the sight of god could find ourselves working out our salvation by works and not by faith uh, I brought this question I've been talking to someone seven days at yeah. the end so. I understand that okay. Philippians 2
4: <coughs> is, is the text that comes to mind in verses 12 and 13 uh, Philippians two twelve work out your salvation with fear and trembling then verse 13 for it is God who is at work in you And all I can say is, it's God working in us, and it's us working it out. Um, The person who's a legalist will say, I achieved it, and God was happy with what I achieved. But the right attitude is, God did it in me, and I'm grateful that He overruled my fallenness to do it. That's the difference. The difference is attitudinal. I know in my own life I have to mortify sin. I have to work out my salvation, work what's on the inside, on the outside in my conduct. And yet, when it's all done, he gets all the glory. The legalist takes the glory and offers it to God and expects God to be happy with his achievement. Okay, so it's an attitude.
7: You, you mentioned in your preaching, you know, I, I think it was three weeks ago when you started, about the conscience that once we feel this guilt, we ourselves deal with it, confess it, and then uh, it's how I, I understand and then just you know forget it yeah, move and on. and I was de- talking to a friend of mine and, and we got into well isn't then that uh, like you know okay I, I if I did something wrong, I'm just gonna make sure I kind of put it away and right, and we deal about this working. Our own well, salvation.
4: No, I, I think you need to put it away. I think, you know, if you've confessed it and repented of it, the Lord has forgotten it. What good is there in you remembering it? In fact, the longer you remember your old sins, the more likely they are to become new temptations. Okay? Okay, we, we only have time for just a couple more, so maybe you can uh, find the noblest question. You stay right there. And uh, we'll take one here, and Dick, if you want to find the one among the two there and make a choice, we we'll, we need to break, or the nursery will be uh, experiencing severe difficulty.
6: <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, John, my name is Stephen Cooper, and I was wondering if you could articulate for me your own personal theology. I know that you came from a dispensational background, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you could talk about Kind of like the history of your studying the Bible and being confronted with covenant theology and how you've sort of come to the conclusions you've come to and when that happened.
4: Well, oh, let's see. I was born at a very early age, and uh, fortunately was born near my mother, and uh, let's see what else. No, um, I, hi I was raised in a dispensational environment, there's no question. Um, People used to say of me that uh, his hope is built on nothing less than Schofield's notes and Moody Press, and uh, I I sort of grew up in that dispensational environment, but um, as I got into seminary, I I began to uh, test some of those things, and uh, I have been perhaps aptly designated as a leaky dispensationalist. Or the Reformed people who want to claim me as Reformed say I'm, I'm uh, Reformed but confused. Um, <laughs> but here's my dispensationalism, okay? I'll give it to you in one sentence. There's a difference between the church and Israel, period. If you understand that, you understand the essence of what I believe is a legitimate biblical dispensationalism. That permits a kingdom. That demands a kingdom, and that makes you premillennial, Because if you believe there's a distinction between Israel and the church, then the church is not Israel. And if the church is not Israel, the promises of a kingdom to Israel have to come to pass, and that's why you have to have a kingdom. I came to understand that more narrow definition of dispensationalism uh, while in seminary, at least to begin to understand it and have found that my study of Scripture over the last uh, 30 years has yielded an affirmation that that is in fact correct. At the same time in seminary, I began to be exposed to reading among... um, more Reformed theologians and found myself uh, drawn uh, toward uh, carefully examining the Scripture. And over the years of exegeting the Scripture, now twenty-five years here, it has again yielded to me a Reformed theology, but it is the byproduct of exegesis. I've always said a man has no right to claim a theology if he's not an exegete, because how can you know what the whole is if you can't interpret the parts? So it's been a process. Uh, I, I was convinced of it when I started, and I'm more convinced of it now as I've gone through the text. I was convinced of it when I started because I, uh, I read so many noble men who held that view. It was more at that point hero worship, and now it's become my own. Okay? That's squeezing it. Okay?
2: Um, yes, I recently have been studying apologetics uh-huh. and studied the presuppositionalist side and the evidentialist side. And then I came across a book by Mark Hanna called Crucial Questions to Apologetics, and he took a position called Verticalism, which made a lot of sense to me. But I just wondered um, what your response would be to a book like that and also how you came to your own personal convictions on an apologetics position.
4: Well, I am a presuppositional apologist. That simply means that I don't believe you start from ground zero uh, with, with evidence. I think you have to start with a presupposition and that is God exists and He is the author of Scripture. And that you affirm that by faith and that's given by the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe I believe in God because God God planted the belief in my heart and I believe in the Bible because God gave me the belief in His Word. And so I start with that. So my defense of anything will be that God already exists. That's the presupposition in Scripture is the Word of God. Um evidential apologetics, starts with nothing and uses philosophical arguments to postulate the existence of God and the authority of Scripture. The difference would be uh, the, the most popular evidential apologist, the most widely known would be Josh McDowell, who starts with nothing and does that. Now, to be honest with you, I have not read Mark Hanna's book. I, I have read some of his material, but that book on vertical of apologetics I have not read. So it's hard for me to comment on it. And maybe a good effort. I need to read it. Thanks for the my interest. Okay.
6: As John, I've um, I've always found uh, the teaching of Harold Camping to be confusing, and I was wondering where does he go wrong? And, well, and especially with the rapture. His yes, rapture. his
4: teaching is is, is confusing. Yeah, uh, he. he um, Um, I've never been asked about him before. That's interesting because we don't have family radio in this area, but wherever you have family radio, he owns a network of family radio stations which are uh, good, and and he gets on, and it it is very confusing. But he tends to be a five-point Calvinist, very strong in Reformed area, but with some rather uh, personalized interpretations of things. And when he gets into eschatology, which is not uncommon, to be honest with you, with Reformed people, they are just completely lost. And when he gets into the book of Revelation, like so many other people of the Reformed tradition, they, they bought a Reformed theology that was codified and packaged prior to the historical development of eschatological theology and the flow of doctrine. And so they, they just don't want to talk about it. And when he gets into Revelation, it gets very confusing. And then when you add to that the fact that he is now convinced... That the rapture will occur in 1994, I think is it September 28th? I think it's September 28th. And, uh, um that that is the day of the rapture and it's all proven in a great, huge, thick book. Um well, we're gonna find out <laughs> how trustworthy he is and, uh, probably before September 28th by watching what he does in the months prior. Um, but yes, you're right, his teaching is confusing. Yeah. Okay, one final question. Thank you.
10: Yes, uh, a Mormon asked me this question a number of years ago, and uh, through the years here at church, I've asked a number of people this question. There seems to be a divided uh, opinion on it, and I wanted to get your opinion. Sure. So uh, people asked, she asked me, it was a Mormon lady asked me when I was witnessing to her, do you have to believe in the Trinity to become a Christian? and I didn't know how to answer at the time.
4: I would answer yes. Um, If you don't believe in the Trinity, then you don't understand who God is. You may say the word God, but you don't understand His nature. Secondly, you couldn't possibly understand who Christ is. Um, I know what I'm saying when I say that. It's going to not only impact people that you may have witnessed to, but there are even people in the one form of the Charismatic or Pentecostal movement called United Pentecostals who are called the Jesus-only, who believe in a kind of modalism uh, where God is God for a while and then He gets to be Christ for a while and He gets to be the Holy Spirit for a while, but He's never all three at the same time. It is my conviction that true salvation is built upon an understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is both God, uh, fully God, and that God at the same time is fully God. And that that's the whole point of what he did in the Gospels. I mean, Jesus was never satisfied with having people accept him as anything other than God. Not just God the Son, but God what? The Father. I think that was the whole thing that he was demonstrating, was the Trinitarian nature of God. So I think not to understand the Trinity is not to understand who God is, and it's not to understand who Christ is, and therefore... It's not to understand the gospel properly. same question arises uh, about the virgin birth. I would say a person could become a Christian if they didn't know about the virgin birth because they would assume that Jesus Christ must have had a unique birth if he was both God and man, right? But if someone says, I would deny the virgin birth, then all you've got is a man. You've got something less than the incarnate God. It is conceivable that somebody would say, no, he wasn't born of a virgin, he was born of Joseph and Mary, and God just infused the Lagos spirit into him, and it could get a little confused that way. But basically, uh, I think you need to believe that God is expressed fully in Christ and yet exists as God, and that the Spirit of God was doing the work through Christ. That's what he said, and anything less than that. He said, if you don't see the Spirit working in me, what is that? Blasphemy. So I think the Trinity is inherent to the gospel understanding. Thank you question. Well, time is up. Thank you for a few extra minutes tonight. hope it's been helpful. Uh, We are so encouraged because we, we hear such great questions. We know you're in the Word. You're learning. You're growing. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thanks for a great evening. Go with us now to strengthen us to serve you, we pray in our Savior's name. Amen.
3: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you.
2: Be told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. T O L D R A D I O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa canchoa the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-S dot C-O-M milesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
10: When does life begin? This is Ken Ham co-author of the popular book on Noah's flood called A Flood of Evidence. It's a question of life or death. When does a human life begin? Now our culture likes to pretend we don't really know and so abortion is okay. It's just a clump of cells, a part of a woman's body. But using vague language like that doesn't change what abortion actually is, murder. You see, we can know when a life begins. At fertilization, when the father's sperm meets the mother's egg, a new person is formed. This person is genetically unique. There's never been another person like him or her and never again. No new genetic information is added after fertilization. Everything that made you was present at that very moment when your life actually began.
0: Discover more about the sanctity of human life when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be emboldened to stand for life with the resources and teaching at AnswersRadio.com.
11: Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group is Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in His worship. You asking the purpose? Partly to set cash from the furnace. Through Jesus' extravagant service. Immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent and we only scratching the surface. He's the seed
7: that was conceived In the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade makes the birth of the Savior. The greater ambience. Came a man, came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked, on the cross he was lifted But we considered him stricken and afflicted Just like the prophets predicted He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent And laid out his life to offer atonement He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis Of insufficient, the blessed, the glory blended, transcendent, difficult to comprehend Independent of space and time But presently present, suspending the heavens With speech from coast to coast He speaks peace to wind and seas Got heavenly hosts easily posted
11: on bended knees Controls the cosmos with the most Authority, so we both in the moment. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the proper of No god is willer, yeah. We can take your time in the scripture, put the gate is a time in the picture. See his light turning right in the night and his fright in the night in the diamond and mixture. See his name at all the renown though, when he came for the loss he found low. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross or the crown. Yo, Satan had a trip hold on him, Fight for the rope, but open in. R to the eyes to the S to the E to the N, that's what we hoping in. Risen on its spell check, the risen king
3: can rinse clean, the most rebellious. I was hellbound, now I'm spell bound. Word is born. I'm a born servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We got to hope that won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's thinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting
7: kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven known earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly prepared. Fortunate, everything that orbits around His glory subordinate, he is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite, son, preeminent, the name, par excellence, prenom phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the ava of astronomy, he's Potter of we, of pottery, it's shocking, Jesus died for me, the father, he adopted me, and constantly provides for me, whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey, from sovereignty and lottery, to poverty and robbery, to resurrected bodily, apocalyptic prophecy, he's stopping all the mockery, and scholarly snobbery, that don't Acknowledge him
1: properly, you ought to be on bended knee before The Preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject Him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Christ on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent, exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of His inheritance. Listen yeah. to sinners that separated and segregated, that severed the relationship between man and his
7: Maker and placed Christ on His. Costly cross and compensated his life, death, and resurrection, emancipated and gave us freedom from it all, freedom from the effects of the fall, freedom from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and from the law So the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hand
1: raised, praising his name, singing glory to God. <laughs> <laughs>
8: Christ, sister, <free. laughs> Christ, sister,
10: A tiny heartbeat, this is Ken Ham and our fearfully and wonderfully made exhibit is open at the Creation Museum. Yesterday we asked the question, when does life begin? Now, some people believe life begins when a heartbeat can be detected, and the heartbeat is very early in a pregnancy at only 22 days of life. Not only that, but the baby has a developing neural cord, arm buds, and a nose, mouth, and ears are on their way All of this is there, and the baby is only the size of a grain of rice. But a heartbeat or developing organs doesn't make the baby human or alive. Life begins at the moment of fertilization. All the information that makes you is there from that very moment. From fertilization, you're a unique person made in God's image.
0: The sanctity of life is an issue of life or death. Be equipped to stand for life when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find the hope of the gospel message for all at AnswersRadio.com.
10: layers of development this is Ken Ham and we've launched the video filled streaming platform answers TV for the next two weeks we're looking at the development of an unborn baby today we're at 24 days of life when many mothers might not even know they're pregnant yet and yet the baby is quickly growing and developing the baby has three layers at this point the outer layer will become the baby's nervous system and skin the middle layer will become the circulatory system, muscle and bone. And the innermost layer develops into the other internal organs. Now these various systems are already well on their way to developing with a tiny heartbeat already beating and a brain forming. Wow, as the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully knit together.
0: There's so much more to discover about the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again, or find the rest of the series when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
11: Yeah, He made us all, you Yeah, God made us all, you
12: God made me and you sing, children. So we all have yeah. a gift. Are never the same. Each person is different, unique in their
11: frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether
8: blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate is the gift of God's
11: grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go.
1: We all have yeah. a different story
11: At the cross we see what God's love is about. There's no type of person that Jesus left out. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, all those who trust in the Lord will be saved. In the book of Revelation, chapter number seven, the church from all
10: times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God
11: for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. Though we
8: all Uh, have a different story, God made me and you. He made us all, y'all. God made me and you. For our
12: joy and for his glory, God made me and you. Say what? God made
2: me and you.
12: Yeah,
11: yeah. Different colors and different shades, all differently and wonderfully made. Glory of God display
2: God made me and you
11: For so all about you All are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross God made me and you Different colors And different shades All fearfully and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you For so all about you All are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus Rose and cross. God made me and you.
10: 40 Days of Life. This is Ken Ham, publisher of the award-winning magazine for the whole family, Answers. Over the next two weeks, we're taking a quick tour through a nine-month process, the development of a baby in the womb. Today we're stopping at just 40 days of life. Baby is now the size of a raspberry and already has a sense of touch. Baby's facial features are forming and tiny arms and legs have grown, wow. Sadly, many children won't make it past a few weeks of life as their lives are taken through abortion. People often see these tiny lives as in the way and many women are pressured, often by the father, to end their baby's life. But an unborn baby isn't something we can just throw away. That baby is a precious person made in God's very image.
0: There's more to discover about the sanctity of human life when you go to AnswersRadio.com and visit our stunning pro-life exhibit at the Creation Museum. Go to (laughs) AnswersRadio.com
11: long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. It's long ago, it's long ago, as long ago as that was. You're
12: still the same. You have not changed. we
11: about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be, surely it's because of the cross, need Jesus pay the full penalty, and bore the burden of sin's great cost. i saved by grace and faith in God, I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified, his work is finished, that cannot change, and with this knowledge I am free. But ever this grace it will remain, because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was,
12: Beautiful, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change.
10: Beautiful, beautiful. you never change, never change. A fetus or a baby? This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that's built a 510-foot-long Noah's Ark. At nine weeks of life, a baby can move her fingers and toes, make breathing movements, and even has taste buds forming. Now, at this stage, the baby is considered a fetus. All this means is that the baby's major organ systems are now in place. But calling the baby a fetus has had deadly results. Many people see a fetus as less human than a baby but all a fetus refers to is a specific time in development, just like the term toddler or teenager. A fetus isn't any less human than a newborn. It's the same baby, just a different stage of development. Age doesn't determine personhood, God does. And he said, each person is fearfully and wonderfully made.
0: Find resources to equip and encourage you in your faith when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and discover the hope of the gospel for every person at AnswersRadio.com Yeah, a mighty fortress.
8: A mighty
1: fortress.
11: A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk- about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool, when we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel. But all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree, do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we be Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over, but it ain't over. we just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up, if you truly love the Son of Man. Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, more power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies confound the academy, bow to his majesty, he paid sin's salary, took our blame on Calvary, those who love his name spread his fame into policy, all eyes on the match with price of his sacrifice, That's us prize a match for Christ and rise right. in the afterlife, what, did we forget about the holiness of God or something, did we forget that God owes us a ride or something, see the snake bruise, when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth, the gospel is not fake news. The gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed medicine, we got the medicine It's still human emergency, the serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, stand up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land my composition, lots of but not traditional, no kind of different. The God's consistent, no contradiction. My proposition, through crucifixion, He must crippled His opposition. It's not some fiction I'm spitting. The Son of God is risen, and my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison, and through the Spirit He brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, to a lot of Christian hip hop is missing. The proper vision is my suspicion. We drop the mission, not to this, but the Word of God is it not sufficient. The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shattered.
8: Condition God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction against the backdrop of our perdition. The
11: gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a top commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no
8: competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up?
11: Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust Jesus is the King. So in the background like elevator music but we gon' celebrate them relegate them we refuse it they hate christian hip-hop i peep myself they say we too redundant well let me repeat myself what i gotta say almost feels too real estate sit back and feel the way to win a real estate cause yo jesus christ got me in into real estate i'm purchased property i feel like i'm real estate if the father wasn't gracious no synonym i can he came straight blameless no synonym i can't nothing's been the same since no synonym i can't no fakers Black is fragrance, no synonym, this is not the picture in a frame, the still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we going to be silent, let the world still Jesus, when the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, uh, hand up, uh, if you truly love the son of man, trust Jesus is alive, and his people he'll revive, and
1: his fame is going to spread across the land.
11: they don't come close to understand it How you can go from most demanded To abandoned in the ocean stranded Surrounded by the waves of your weariness Some things you only learn from age and experience And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see The time is coming when they will be a faded memory Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone,
8: no matter who it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they want to know Eventually we
11: learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sands of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not one day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plans for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience, to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the stages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it the whole of the script hmm, it's found in the pages, a holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend, but what a man sees under heaven, Ecclesiastes 111. No matter who you are, death aims to stop you, whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra. Before your time is done, meet the timeless one, the dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun. King Jesus, astounding amazes, he pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages. So let us praise the one who made the Everglades, our debt was paid, so in glory we'll
8: never a never of never doing
13: never things never YouTube. never example, never been never Go to teenspeed.org Click the donate button below this video right now? One dollar equals one less pound of trash in the ocean. Making real change like this isn't going to be easy. Go donate right now and help us remove more $1 million pounds of trash in the ocean before <laughs> the end of the year. Ryan Program. The goal of this series ultimately is to raise a million meals. Right now one dollar is ten meals. Be sure to donate with the link in the description that's directly to Feeding America. I'm very excited. Mark Rover. I was supposed to know that you guys the same trees. I've put it the trees by 2020 isn't is going to cure climate change. This perspective in the right direction and a constructive positive way to send the message that we see the science and we care. So thanks for watching and thanks for doing your part to make a difference. I am so stoked. It's great to see but it's important to remember that doing good things doesn't solve the problem of truth. You be ever mindful of the fact that our greatest need is a solution that is only found in the personal work of Christ. Shirt shopping. What a gas. To abbreviate your search, call or send the pastor the following question. Preface it lovingly in a willful and persistent, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. Inherit eternal life. We know sinners are certainly forgiven. But those who practice it, who don't stumble into sin but they die, they can't inherit eternal life. Faith alone in Jesus Christ is preceded and followed by repentance, a turning away from sin, a hatred for the things that God hates and a love for the things that God loves, a growing in holiness and a desire not to be like Britney Spears, not to be like the world, and not to be like the great majority of American Christians, but to be like Jesus Christ.
9: I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you.
13: And that leads us rather nicely to question number 18. Does your church exercise church discipline? Paul said we should. And as we've seen from moral failures from pastors, church discipline, it is not an option. It is a must for a sound church. There's a covenanting paper becoming a membership. And that includes stipulations that if you fall into sin, you will um, potentially be
6: fall into the discipline of the church, uh, which is done for the purposes of restoration, purify the church. So we're hoping to restore that person, that the process
13: of discipline will draw that person back. Number 19, what criteria are used to determine if someone is qualified to be a Sunday school teacher or a youth volunteer. Why? Because it reveals a church's understanding of the high calling and responsibility of being a sound teacher. It is awesome, uh, not just a hole to be filled. I take
6: my preparation very seriously. I'll spend two or three hours doing something that's called prayer latte. Prayer lattes is one, I get on the exercise ball,
13: I'll have a latte, and I'm fat. It's like God's my trainer. Number 20, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Here they are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, salvation through faith alone, grace alone revealed in Scripture alone. I think we need to say that there are some absolutely non-negotiable truths that you are false if you deny the Trinity, if you deny the duty of Christ. If you deny sinless life, substitutionary death, um, salvation by grace through faith, the gospel, um, I mean, that, that's the drivetrain of truth. If a church does not believe in the essentials, it isn't a church. It's something else. And just a note to pastors, please know there are so many of us who hold a high view of scripture, a high view of preaching, and a high view of the church. Please, 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 for our sakes, don't go all squishy. We need you. We want you now more than ever. devil? If I were the devil. No, if you were the devil. Imagine you've been kicked out of heaven and you aren't happy. You know that you can't dethrone the creator, but you do know you can cause a whole lot of grief with his creation. you got one shot at it. What scheme would you concoct to successfully cause the maximum amount of grief? So I were the devil, my major thrust would be to present the option of the autonomous self. And it is exactly what the devil did in the garden when he asked Adam and Eve, has God really said the devil has been running that play ever since Adam and Eve decided they would be better gods than God? This scheme has never been on fully display. Then right now, the rise of the autonomous self has infected at least 15 realms of our world. Let's start with the obvious expression of the autonomous self. Number one, reality. It's not uncommon for a university student to affirm, yeah, we might be living in a giant's dream. Why? Because the rise of the autonomous self allows us to be detached from what is really real. Okay, I perceive that you're actually Oprah Winfrey.
12: Okay, that's Am fine. I wrong? Um, I mean, that's what you're
13: presenting. No, 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 no. Am I wrong?
2: No. Um, you are Oprah Winfrey? Yes, yeah, sir. You get mm-hmm. a car. You get a card. Wow,
3: too. for everybody? Yes. So
8: you're Oprah. Yeah.
3: I had no idea. I know her image
13: changes every month on the front cover, but I didn't expect this. Number two, truth. Hey, your truth is your truth, right? right. I think that when I die... I am going to go to Graceland and spend eternity with Elvis Presley eating peanut butter and banana sandwiches for the rest of eternity if I sing you ate nothing but a hound dog three times before I die. Am I wrong? <laughs> I mean, no, that's totally sort of a weird. Fantasy. Okay, I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I'm not wrong. I'm right. What? What's wrong or right? Three, sexuality. Love is love. Why? Because you get to decide how you want to use your body. I'm happily married to a carnival ride called a skydiver. Which brings us to number four expression of the autonomous self, abortion. The argument of bodily autonomy was used by progressives to persuade the Supreme Court that v. Wade is good law. Your body... Your choice. I'm really passionate about women's health, and um, I think that we need to give them more autonomy in their health care. I don't think that women should have to explain um, why they need an abortion, but, but just, if they want one, then they can get one. Number five, gender. What gender are you? You're not either a pink or blue. You're whatever gender you choose to identify with. How many genders are there? Infinite.
8: Infinite. I don't think they're infinite. Why do you say that? Because I think, oh, you can't put things in boundaries. There are some more
13: expressions of the autonomous self. These are a little bit more subtle. Number six, hermeneutics. What does that Bible verse say to you? The Bible is a matter of individual subjective interpretation. Whatever it means to you is fine. Like I say, if that's what people have in mind, it terrifies me for this reason. Because then it becomes a slogan for what we call subjectivism. Yeah, well, you know, it's just like uh, your opinion, man. Number seven, church attendance. I don't need to be with God's people. I have myself, and that's enough for me. You need to be in the church. You can't exist in isolation. God never intended that for you. Find a group of people that you can love and serve and minister to, and be a part of it, and be faithful and be loyal. Number eight, divorce the autonomous self has the right to be happy. Break any vow that limits one's ability to do so. No, calm down. Divorce isn't scary. In fact,
8: it's a good thing. Are you serious, dude?
13: Number nine, broken families. Parents who dare speak into the lives of their adult children will be canceled by them without compunction. Nobody, including mom and dad, is going to stand in the path of... My happiness. What horrifies me is that is that there are parents who are so disapprove, who are so brainwashed to think that, that this is something, you know, out of the Bible or ungodly or, you know, against nature. Uh-uh. Number 10 expression of the autonomous self, homelessness. This is why we allow drug-addicted image bearers to sleep under bridges because we must let the individuals live the way they think Best. And then there are the thousands, at least 8,000 people without homes in this city, many of them living along the alleys and sidewalks of this neighborhood. And number 11, Mary Joanna. I call her weir. You get it
8: now
13: you see Weir. Of course, makes no sense to allow people to become potheads, but it makes perfect sense if you believe in the autonomous self.
0: Marijuana advocacy groups protested outside the White House today, demanding President Obama decriminalize marijuana nationally. Leaders, activists, and supporters lit up their joints as they protested in Lafayette Square. Number
10: 12,
13: patriotism. The autonomous self, no obligation to neighbor country flag. This life is about me. We're all captains of our own destinies.
8: America.
13: Number 13, texting and driving. My text is far more important than your life. Take a look at this video. A distracted truck driver in Arizona, allegedly looking at pictures in his phone, crashes in police cars, and emergency vehicles, killing one officer. Number 14, violent crime, murder, no longer the taking of a human life. It's an act to ensure someone is no longer a threat to my self-fulfillment. When little on screen do something after a mass shooting, why aren't we also dealing with the fact that the average American kid sees two thousand acts of violence on screens before the age of 18? And that, according to the FBI, one of the warning signs of a potential school shooter is a fascination with violence-filled entertainment. And finally, the last expression of the autonomous self-singleness. Why are people getting married at a younger age? Because a covenant relationship puts constraints on me and how I want to live. So my opening word is, if you're not married, get married. This is the grace of life. This is God's best gift. This list could go on and on, but the point is clear. The devil's scheme to encourage humans to shake their fists at God, tradition, theology, the Bible, is alive and well. The question, of course, is what do we do about this? For the answer to that question, we only need to consider the better Adam. If you consider the devil's strategy to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, there were three variations of the same scheme, autonomous how did Jesus counter the devil's autonomous self-temptations? The word, and that is precisely what we need to do. If we engage our culture on any other level than the Bible, the devil will have more victories than losses. Yes, continue voting. But know that politics won't save a society bent on autonomy. Continue to do good to all men, but know that acts of charity will not slow down a culture that that is racing towards self-destruction. Yes, continue to try to reason with people, but know that their reason machines are busted, and nobody has ever been reasoned out of the kingdom of the autonomous self. Recently had a meal with Daryl Harrison of Grace to You. You can watch the entire conversation at our YouTube machine. He brilliantly said it's a fool's errand to debate a CRT proponent. Instead, Daryl encouraged us to lift the conversation to another realm, the realm of the Bible, and that's what we must do with CRT and every other realm, ideology, or stronghold that stands in opposition to God. Use the word. If we want people to think rightly, they must first believe rightly. Read 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. If we don't want people to think like noodle heads, they don't need a book on how to think better. They need the gospel.
2: Yes, and Friends, and the We Are Really. Bye for now.